Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Alicia Menendez is a host, television commentator, and the author of The Likeability Trap, a book that I loved. Trust me when I say any woman looking to be successful in her career will resonate with these pages. Women are caught in a bind when it comes to being well-liked. In the workforce, women seem to have to sacrifice likability for leadership and vice versa. It begs the question, what really matters? Today, Alicia is sharing the differences between likability, relatability, and popularity, and some of the personality traits that influence the way we are perceived. We learn about what helps us and harms us when it comes to moving ahead in our careers. Luckily, Menendez has some advice to help us navigate. She urges us to shift away from responding to situations with the hope of being liked and to instead learn better ways of communicating clearly and executing what needs to be done. Instead of having an interaction or approaching a workplace situation and thinking, how do I come out of this well-liked by the person I'm interacting with? Instead, focusing on, am I clear on what I want? Am I clear on what I need? Am I communicating those needs correctly? And am I communicating clearly to this person the role that they will play in executing the thing that needs to be done. Because those are things you can control. All right, let's cut to my chat with Alicia Menendez. So I power read your book. Thank you for doing that. Of course, it was so fun. It's such an interesting read. And obviously things that I think so many women intuitively feel and know, but it's always nice to see that stuff represented both in studies and also in other women's stories. Makes you feel a little less like it's in your head. Totally. And I've been blessed in my own career, particularly now, because at Goop, it's primarily women. Mm -hmm. And we have a primarily, it's actually three women and and a Mexican man on our executive team. So we're slightly different. Yep. But I know for most women who are navigating careers at the beginning, middle, and end, it's a tightrope. Right. Especially if you're a woman who works in a male-dominated industry or office, because that sets the standard for what ambition and leadership is supposed to look like. And so you run into this conundrum where either you are warm and communal and people don't see you as leadership material, mm-hmm. or you are assertive, you are aggressive, you ask for what you need, you advocate for yourself, and then you become less likable and you pay a penalty for that. So no matter what you choose, you're wrong because that's how we've set it up. Right. Women are on a a perpetual tightrope. And like you cite the Harry and Heidi Rosen case from HBR, same name, same, sorry, same exact scenario, different names. 
I think it's like someone raising venture capital money, right? And they, or, they like him just fine. Yeah. They think that they're, not only do they not like her, they assume that there's something wrong with her because right. she's been successful. Right. Which is so interesting. And then we're both mothers, so compounding that too is, is the bias against moms. Like right. you're either good at your job or good as a parent, but it's right. not, it's perceived to be impossible to be both. Right. Because at home, we value warmth in a woman. And at work, especially in a male-dominated field, we value strength. There was an experiment that made me want to put my head through a wall where there's a mom who is at work and faces some type of emergency at home Mm -hmm. and has to choose between staying at work and heading home. So if she heads home, she's seen as less competent and if she stays at work, she's seen as some type of cold monster. And when they do the same experiment with men, there's no penalty. So there's just women are up against these expectations that make it really hard to know what to do, which is why I think it seems so easy to be like, just do you. Right. But that is perhaps a little too simple of an answer. Right. And this idea of likability, which is sort of the central thesis of your book, not caring, you sort of frame it as to coach women to not care or put it aside is essentially making them responsible for both the problem and the solution. Correct. And there's been a body of research that shows that people who are exposed to those lean-in messages where you can you know, pull yourself up from your bootstraps or navigate around this believe that the problem is both on women for having created and incumbent upon them to fix, which is so deeply unfair. And I'll admit, I mean, I went in to writing this book really wanting to write more of an eat, pray, love for likability, you know, do some yoga and meditation and let it all go, (laughs) which would have been a much more fun process than the one that I ultimately took on. And part of it's that I care a lot about being well-liked. I had this, I guess, in my imagination, women who don't care were out there living their best lives. And what I found as I spoke to women were that Other women like me who cared were paying a price internally for that care, but the women who don't care, who really do them, will concede that they've often paid a price too at work for being so brazenly themselves, that Mm -hmm. they've been thought of as less likable. They've perhaps not advanced as quickly as they feel they could have because they weren't willing to play by a set of rules that they didn't create. And that in some ways became much more interesting to me. Like the fact that it's not as simple as choosing not to care, that you're caught in a bind either way. Yeah. I mean, these are conversations that no man is having ever, right? Maybe men of color, Mm -hmm. which I think was also sort of an amazing part of your book when you're working with these young teenage girls about the likability trap. And essentially Mm -hmm. the girls are like, you are so white. Yeah. Likeability is a Latina, but no, and I'm very white presenting and, and, and they weren't wrong. I mean, that was pushback that I got from a lot of women of color, which is that if you live in a culture and a society where people hate the fact of your existence, then wow, likeability sounds like such a silly thing to be striving for. And there is some research also that shows that if you grow up in a home, particularly in in a home with black parents, that there is more of a sense that you need to be valued inside the home and that that sense of self has to come from within because there's an awareness that when they send you out into the world, 
you will not receive that affirmation from mm-hmm. the world around you. And so that it has to be anchored in the home and sometimes in faith. But yeah, likability, women contend with it, people of color contend with it, anyone with a marginalized identity because of the way that we've defined leadership in this country. Yeah. So not to propagate stereotypes, but <laughs> no, but citing, <laughs> citing the research, mm-hmm. can you sort of run us through sort of what expectations are of black women, Latina women, Asian American women, yeah. not yeah. to also exclude other groups, but those are the three yeah, primary I mean, ones you talk about. And I, and I will say, you know, I, for example, wanted to write more about disabled women and was having trouble finding research about disability in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And when I spoke with Rebecca Coakley, who's at the Center for American Progress and does all this great work around disability advocacy, she said to me something like, well, that's because we're still in our mid-career. Like For so long, disabled women couldn't go to colleges and universities. They weren't being given access Mm -hmm. to the workforce. They certainly weren't being promoted into leadership positions, that there just weren't the numbers there to really interrogate. And only now are they beginning to really look at those things. So you know, Latinas like myself, the the general stereotype is either that we're really warm and meek, someone who you feel great affection for but don't take very seriously, or that we are incredibly hot-blooded, irrational, passionate, you know, think of Sofia Vergara's character on Modern Family. With, with Asian women, there is a cultural expectation that they be submissive. So they are seen as great worker bees, but often are not seen as great leaders. And there are all these studies of Silicon Valley that show that even though they represent a large portion of the workforce in Silicon Valley, they're not breaking into management and executive roles. And then with black women, there is always this concern that assertiveness is read as aggression and as anger. Mm-hmm. And and where that manifests doubly is that so often if you are a woman of color in a high power workspace, you're the only woman of color in that space. So you may hear something or see something that you realize is wrong, egregious, and you face that question of, do I point it out? Mm-hmm. And in pointing it out, no matter how I point it out, run the risk of becoming the problem myself by flagging the problem. And that that is something that women of color are just contending with on a very regular basis. Right. And particularly when you explain how feedback for women is typically far more subjective than objective. Really, it comes down. I mean, it's like the Hillary Rodham Clinton, like, I don't like her. Yep. Right. Yep. But I love that phrase that you, you that's sort of part of the tool bag that you present where when you receive a piece of feedback that's somehow about your manner or your likability or your management style, when it is subjective to say as compared to who. Right. And that I need to credit to this wonderful executive coach. Her name is Katerina Castula. She has that piece of advice, which I think is great because it forces the person who's giving you that review to consider whether or not they'd also give it to Jim in the office. And then the other piece of feedback she or advice she gives, I think is really tangible is to ask the person who's giving you that stylistic feedback to draw a line from that style to the outcomes and the results in your work. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to be open to the fact that sometimes there may be something there that I may say, you know, you are um, 
incredibly deliberate. I know you pride yourself on being deliberate. That sometimes manifests as indecision. Recently, we had a project that needed to be in on Monday. You wanted to run the numbers seven more times, and it didn't get into the client until a week later, and we almost lost that account. Okay, now you understand how your style is impacting the work in the office, and that may be something that you actually then can retool. To just be told, you know, you're not assertive enough, you're too assertive, well, it's hard to know then how to actually put that into action. It's hard to know if that's an opinion assessment from the person who's giving it to you or if it actually is relevant to your work. Right. And it also, you know, it goes to this idea, too, that somehow these softer skills, right, like ability trumps competence. Mm -hmm. And we certainly saw that in the last election, even though I find Clinton highly likable. But this idea that it doesn't matter how well you might do the job if people don't want to have a beer with you. Right, and that's particularly true for women. So, you know, there there are plenty of male candidates that have been perceived as unlikable, or at least had it be a part of the conversation. Mitt Romney was always called very stiff, Al Gore the same. John Kerry was seen as being very aloof. Uh, Ted Cruz, there were there are multiple <laughs> headlines dedicated to Ted Cruz's likability. And, and Donald Trump had one of the highest or lowest favorability rates of almost any candidate. The difference is that People will vote for a male candidate who they don't like so long as they perceive him to be competent. With women candidates, you have to be both. And that's really complicated because you have to be seen as a leader. And if you define leadership by all of these male qualities, particularly in the case of a president where we we haven't had a woman president. So Mm -hmm. there's no blueprint to go off of. It's why you have Senator Kamala Harris in this race every time she refers to the president of the United States saying when she signs that executive Mm -hmm. order, when she is in her White House, because it helps people sort of move into a framework where they're thinking of the president of the United States, where the image is evoking in their mind is one of a woman leader. Right. What's the distinction between popularity likability, and then at the end you introduce this idea of relatability. Yes. Mitch Pristine has an entire book about this called Popular. Popularity is about status. I mean, if you think back to high school, sometimes the people who are popular, no one really liked them. They Mm -hmm. just had status in some way, and they were seen as being you know, socially valuable or having power inside that weird high school ecosystem. But you could have friends who you really liked and were well liked by a lot of people, but didn't necessarily have that same type of social prowess. Part of what makes talking about likability really difficult and writing about likability really difficult and why I probably spent about six months on the first chapter of the book and then had to speed write the rest is because it's hard to define. And there are there are some characteristics that make up the basis of our personality, openness to new experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism. But even those don't totally land on a single truth about what makes a likable person, right? So if you are neurotic, that tends to be the one characteristic that gets a consistent demerit, agreeableness, how well you get along with others, and extroversion tend to make people more likable. But I like a slightly neurotic person, you know, like that. Yeah. that's not, it's not so clear cut. And I think very often when we're talking about likability, we like people who are like ourselves, both in a macro sense in terms of in-group bias and people who share Mm -hmm. very similar, you know, uh, 
categories, social categories as ourselves, but also just like in a workplace, I'm low conflict. I don't love having conflict in the workplace. And so I gravitate towards other people who are also low, con- low conflict. I remember I was working at a nonprofit that did Hispanic voter registration and engagement years ago. And we had this workplace analysis where they put us into these quadrants based on how much we were comfortable with confrontation, how organized we were. And I had a team maybe of three or four, but we all were very uncomfortable with confrontation. So my group got along great. We got very little done. And so it was like, (laughs) that helped me understand like, yes, I like these people because they are like me and they allow me to be the way I am without any type of tension. That may not actually produce the best results. It might be good for me to be on a team with someone who is comfortable with confrontation, with someone who is a little bit more organized and deliberate because those are the places where I have voids in my own leadership. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. When it comes to skincare, I am big on exfoliating a lot. I don't really wear makeup when I'm going to the office during the week, but I always wear moisturizer or face oil. And the other thing I do every single morning is drink Goop Glow. Goop Glow is our morning skin super powder. So in other words, it's a powder that you mix into a glass of water. The flavor tastes a little like oranges and a little like lemon verbena. I love it. We designed Goop Glow to be full of ingredients that support healthy, glowing skin. There are six potent antioxidants in Goop Glow. You've probably heard of most of them, like vitamin C and vitamin E, CoQ10, lutein, and zeaxanthin. And altogether, these antioxidants in Goop Glow are meant to reduce the free radical effects of the sun, pollution, and everyday stress. Topical skincare is great, but I personally don't think it's enough, which is why I like adding Goop Glow to my routine. The powder comes in cute little single dose packets. I subscribe to our 30 packs of Goop Glow, so I get my new box every month. And if I'm not drinking it at home, I'll throw a packet in my gym bag on the way to work out, or I'll bring a bunch of Goop Glow in my carry-on when I'm traveling for sure. If you want to try it out yourself, and I highly recommend you do, order one box of Goop Glow today and we'll include a second box on us. Just head to goop.com slash goopglowpodcast and use promo code goopglow at checkout. That's goop.com slash goopglowpodcast and use promo code goopglow to get your second box on us. One of the principles that guides how the fashion team at Goop designs our clothing line is the idea of having fewer beautifully made things that last for seasons. They're most interested in the kind of high quality pieces that you can live in and love for a long time. This also applies to workout clothing and Sweaty Buddy's power leggings live up to that standard. 20 years ago, Sweaty Buddy was created in London and has been shaping the activewear market ever since. They believe in using the highest quality, most flattering materials. Sweaty Buddy power leggings are engineered to be high performance and to work for every activity level, whether that's a morning run, Pilates, or chasing your kids around. Their leggings sculpt your legs almost like a second skin. They have convenient side and back pockets, and they're sweat wicking. The fabric is stretchy, yet supportive, and perhaps most importantly, if I'm honest, super flattering. 
The high waist also stays up, so I don't find myself pulling them up in the middle of class at Tracy Anderson. Sweaty Buddy Power Leggings are available in multiple colors and prints at sweatybuddy.com goop. And right now, you can get 20% off your order by using code goop. Okay, let's hear more from Alicia Menendez. It's interesting. The person who I most related to in the book. Tell me. And now I really want to have her on the podcast, so hopefully she's listening. Carly Fiorina. I completely, everything she said, I was like, yes, 1,000%. And she was talking, her experience, and, and granted, our career trajectories are very different, and she has excelled at a mass scale in a male-dominated Right, former CEO of Hewlett-Packard, yeah. then a candidate for president. Who was trolled by Trump for being ugly. But as she points out, he trolled everyone, although her response was excellent, which was, I think, women in the United States heard you at the debate. But I don't remember exactly what she said, but it's something that I've come to understand in my own career Sometimes leading and likability are mutually yes. exclusive concepts. Like you, it's not a popularity contest. You can't. Really, that's not something right. you can prioritize. Otherwise, you're not being right effective or responsible. Well, one of the things that I think she details nicely is how you you work in an ecosystem, right? So she tells a story in in one of her books about her time, I believe, at AT and T, and how there was a manager who was above her in the hierarchy of that office who was very aggressive, very cruel with the people on her team, and so she had to make a decision about protecting the people on her team, even if it made her less likable to a person who had more power than her in the organizational structure. She ultimately decides to have a confrontation with him, to stand up to him, to tell him that he can't talk to people that way. And she wins so much social support from her team in her retelling and ultimately doesn't pay a price for him, but it's a calculation about mm -hmm. who she needs to be liked by, and more importantly, how to do the right thing. And that was something I heard over and over again, that you really need to have clarity of vision, mm -hmm. and you need to be able to express that clarity to other people in the office. And, and that's one of the shifts that I recommend for someone like myself, who does care a lot about being likable, is that instead of having an interaction or approaching a workplace situation, and thinking, how do I come out of this well-liked by the person I'm interacting with instead focusing on, am I clear on what I want? Am I clear on what I need? Am I communicating those needs correctly? And am I communicating clearly to this person the role that they will play in executing the thing that needs to be done? Because those are things you can control. You can't control whether or not other people like you. Right. I would add to that that I think focusing instead on respect, which again is hard to produce, right? Like it's earned, it's not it's not something that you can demand ever. But acting in integrity, right? So your words and your actions are aligned. You are being honest with yourself, right? Like you're not diminishing yourself. And then sort of I would say just to get really goopy on you, but to like have faith in the universe, right? Mm -hmm. And I think you also within the book you plot out a few people who bail, right? Yes. Who get to a point where they realize, like, I don't want to be a partner at this law firm, mm -hmm. even though I've spent seven years mm -hmm. climbing its ranks and I might make partner next month. Like, you have to in some ways be willing 
to flip the table, which I know is not always fiscally possible, but, and you hit this bell multiple times throughout the book, and I think it's absolutely correct. Every industry is ripe for disruption, and there is sort of this, at least the millennials, are you a millennial? I'm an old millennial, You're an old millennial. I'm not a millennial, but... (laughs) They seem they seem to be, and I guess probably every generation carries this banner for the previous generation, but they seem to be really unwilling to accept status quo simply because it's status quo. Right. And I feel like you just can't, companies will, will struggle to retain talent if they don't evolve. But I know it's hard because the top, there are very few women of color, there are very few women and the leadership ranks of these companies, both mentoring, supporting, and enforcing a different way of being. Right. I, I was struck by how the people who, at least who I spoke with, who seemed happiest were the people who had found organizations or, or industries where their skill set and their way of being was truly valued, such that they didn't feel like they were a misfit mm-hmm. in that space. And a lot of women who've started things themselves. I mean, small enterprises, huge enterprises, and that that created its own sense of happiness and mm-hmm. and safety. But I think part of what you're alluding to, and, and this in part comes out of a study that Google did of all of their teams and their highest functioning teams and what those teams had in common. And one of the things they had in common was psychological safety, that people felt like they could be themselves, take risks, and I do think that is what you are trying to gravitate towards. I want to say, though, to your goopy point about <laughs> allowing the universe, you know, having some faith in the universe, one of the mistakes that I do think women make and that I've seen again and again is this idea of the work will speak for itself. Mm-hmm. As, as a, I, I agree the work should speak for itself. Additionally, though, there is a sub-conversation often happening about who gets credited for that work. Mm-hmm. And if you don't ever take credit or you don't ever give credit to, to women, then it very often puts women in this helper role or this assistant role where they are seen as sort of being proximate to the project but not the visionary mm-hmm. or responsible for the project. And that hurts women over the course of their careers, both in terms of, of promotions, in terms of raises. I mean, it matters who gets credit. And that's the only part where I don't think the sort of handing it over works. I I only, by... I know you mean it slightly differently. I mean it slightly differently in the sense that the universe, I think the universe respects momentum and it respects, like, I, I think that sometimes things that seem terrible and hard and like the worst possible outcome actually furnish the most fruit. So I would say it's like, trust the universe that if it's like that it will ferret you out. If you are forward and you push, like you will be ferreted out to a potentially a much better outcome, even if it, at the time it seems scary and terrifying. That, no, I don't think, I don't believe in complacency at all. Do you, it's, and I know that you talk about women in the book who don't care about likability. I would put myself probably in that camp at this point. Okay, no, 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 I need to know everything. <laughs> Did you start there? I think so. Like, as a teen, you were one of those well, cool girls who didn't give a damn. I, yeah, let's, I mean, I think, because some of this, I feel like, in a way, this needs to be a parenting book about how to not parent girls in particular, but I think, yeah, primarily girls 
around likability. Like that was never, I think it's because I grew up, I grew up in Montana in a small town called Missoula. And I went to this hippie school where there were six of us per grade. Okay. So it was very familial. (laughs) And, And then what was college like? And so, and then I went to boarding school. Okay. I went to public high school. Then I went to boarding school and, and I grew up like kind of in the woods. So I had my brother and I had books and I spent a lot of time alone and at school there were no popularity wars to win because like these were people you knew forever. So then I went to boarding school and I certainly, I got very comfortable. I was eventually sort of adopted by a, a group of, I, I was, I assimilated into my class but it took a beat and because I wouldn't bow down. Like I didn't, there were noobs and. Oh, this is, see, this is the, yeah. this is one of the things that, that sort of drives me nuts, which is the not caring just makes you cooler. Like I want to be your friend now because you clearly <laughs> don't give a damn, right? Like it's like <laughs> there is something in that too and the fact that it, it's, it doesn't seem important to you and you're not trying for it and that becomes seductive in and of itself. Right. I mean someone who really, really cares that you like them, you very often can feel it on them, right? But where did that come from in you? As a child, where, is that, was that part of the coaching? No, I have, I have a mother who does not care. And so I don't think that I received those messages at home, which is part of why I have reservations about making it a parenting book, because I feel like I was parented to believe that I really could be ambitious and want things and do me. And I think because I was like truly out of central casting girl in the front row, hand up, you know, always wanted to be the leader on a project, there was some, some of it is is fair in the world, which is you can't always be the leader on the project, right? You do sometimes have to give other people a turn and learn to be a good follower in addition to being a good leader. I think that's a perfectly fine leadership skill. But I became aware that the way that I was naturally was annoying. Mm. And <laughs> and do you think that's true? I think there was probably a slight lack of self-awareness around the way that my never stepping back didn't allow anyone else to step up. Mm. And that's why I do also advocate for self-awareness in the book, because once I became aware of it, I could be more myself, but be aware of the way that I was impacting others. I think that 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 connective tissue was what was not articulated when I was younger, which is, it's not that you being you is inherently a problem. It's that the way you are affects the way that other people are allowed to be and can be around you. And sometimes you have to give other people a chance. Right. No, I think that that's fair, but I also feel like there is that yeah. conditioning that's specifically Absolutely. for girls. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I don't want to take anything away from that. Um, yeah, and that is across cultures that we raise girls to care what others think of them and to be really attuned to others, which has a value too, right? Like that's part of what's complicated about it, which is. I think that has value. I wish that more people cared about other people's feelings and cared about their impact on others. What is so dangerous with girls is when it becomes a hyper-focus. Right, or an expectation. And I mean, I think I'm a a very empathetic person. Mm -hmm. I care deeply about other people. But I also don't take responsibility for other people. 
okay, and did you learn that boundary? Can you teach it to me? <laughs> well, I think part of it is it's interesting even just hearing you talk about this experience as a child because I think that's an example of making you the problem and an expectation of a solution, yeah. whereas I feel like the adults in your life, teachers, whichever, should have been sort of recal like putting you in situations or calibrating groups around you that where people were allowed to lead or follow, you know, like. And there was some of that. I do think, though, part of it is being a super sensitive person, mm -hmm. like super, you know, cry during dog food commercials person who is attuned to other people's feelings and having to learn how to put that in perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, and coming back to the workplace, there will be times that you have to make decisions that other people don't like. And right. there will be times that you have to do things that impact people that won't make them feel good and will make you less likable. And I think I wanted to hold up this idea that that didn't have to happen, that there was right. always a way to preserve those feelings. But I also think that we, within these structures, we operate like this job or this career is the, be the best and only thing that's yes. ever going to happen to yes. you. And as a leader and a boss, I'm putting this, I'm victimizing you somehow by giving you this feedback or showing you the door when in reality, often it leads to the very best thing for the person. Mm -hmm. But like we, we take this over responsibility. And I think on the other side, and I certainly felt this when I was sort of coming up the ranks, I had this epiphany in my 20s when I was at my first job at a magazine and I was sort of miserable and I had a very toxic coworker who was, it was not clear whether she was above me or not, but I was, she was persecuting <laughs> me. And Did you love that? Yeah. She didn't really have any, theoretically didn't have power, but took what she could to sort of like systematically go after me. And I just remember sort of looking around for a savior. And it was this point, too, where I was like, maybe I can just marry a rich guy and retire at the age of 25, right? I just wanted out. Like, I couldn't figure it out. And I was like, I need to stop expecting, like, no one's going to come down and, like, pluck me. No one's going to look at me and say, oh, you seem exceptional. Like, let me give you a new <laughs> job, you know? Like, I was yes. like, I have to deal with this myself. Yeah. I've got to move my ass and get out of the situation, which is what I did. It's one of the things I didn't understand about those early years in the workforce, which is that's 90% of the learning that you're doing, right? Yeah. You think that it's the hard skills, right? It's like learning layout or learning editorial, and there is so much of that. But most of what you're learning is how to navigate those situations. Totally. And which are battles that are yours to win and which are battles that it's just like not worth dying on the hill, right? Like you can't change behavior, nor is it your responsibility. So it's like if you have a toxic manager and you can't HR your way around it, then sometimes the best thing to do is to leave. And I also want to talk about negotiating because that's, I know, mm -hmm. kicks women in the ass yeah. unfairly. Mm -hmm. And one tool that I use is to, and I've used this throughout my career on both sides, where I am very clear up front about my expectations, either sort of, and I give people an opportunity to do that. So like if any job I've ever had, I've sort of put it on the table first, like this is where I would like to be. And on the flip side, instead of, I do have sort of within my team to make sure that there's pay parity, although my team is all women, but there are all sort of people at different levels or mm -hmm. within the same 
pays. I, I want to keep everyone equitable as possible. But I give people sort of a chance first to put their number down so that we're not in sort of like a head-to-head negotiation. But can you sort of talk, explain what research shows in terms of negotiation and women? Yeah. It's funny that I will talk about this because I will say that the line of work I am in, I have a manager and before a manager and agent, so I haven't negotiated for myself in a very long time. And whenever my manager calls and says, here's a job offer, they want to pay you $10, I'm like, great, let's take it. <laughs> and she's always like, no, like, you're, thank goodness you don't negotiate for yourself. There is incredible value to negotiating. What I wanted to articulate was just there also are social penalties to negotiating for women. Mm -hmm. And so when you hear these sort of go girl edicts about like you march in there and you tell them what you need and you want, that again puts it all on you in this way where if you just ask for what you want, then you will get Mm -hmm. it. And that is the totality of, of the challenge when in reality it's like, if it feels hard, it's because it's hard. It's because you are negotiating the fact that women aren't supposed to negotiate on behalf of themselves and that there can be potential backlash to that. It could mean having job offers rescinded. It could mean, you know, getting the job, but starting off on the wrong foot, like those are real penalties. And what I think is hard and what I couldn't quite get to the bottom in the research is, is how lasting those penalties are. Right. Right. Because if it's like, all right, your first two weeks in the office, everyone's like, this is at least she navigated, she negotiated too hard and then it wears off, then that's fine. And then you move along. And then of course you should keep negotiating. What I still can't assess is how long that penalty lingers. Right. I mean, I think ultimately, and and it's that's an unknown for sure, but the surest way, I think, to be confident about it is to ha- always have leverage. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're yep. entry level, uh, and I think more companies are starting to conform to this and, and, and create parity and ensure that all managers are sort of within the same ribbon of compensation, et cetera. But it's to like when you're starting, you you have leverage. You you have little leverage, right? When you're entering the workforce. Mm-hmm. But when you start to grow and develop your career, and you get counteroffers, and like that's what I always say to people who aren't necessarily on my team, but are like, I feel underpaid and undervalued. I'm like, go and get an offer. Yes, pick up absolutely. the phone, and yep. then you have real yep. market leverage, yep. and you can use that. And it's a fact, and you can't do it unless you're willing to walk. But that's, those are the cold, hard facts, and it's really hard on the other side to argue with that. So how, I know, can you quickly sort of, I know sponsorship. Yeah, big um, believer in sponsorship, which, you know, mentors give you lots of feedback, advice. There's incredible value in a mentor. A sponsor really delivers for you. This is an idea from Sylvia and Hewlett. So she has an entire book. Highly recommend that. But, you know, a sponsor delivers for you. And what I think is, it's sort of in the subtext of what she talks about, but that person can both brag about you, which is hard for women to do. They mm-hmm. pay a price when they brag about themselves. They can advocate for you. They can connect you to opportunities. And they also can provide cover for you. So if you do work in a bigger structure than the one that you work in, it can, you know, they can be the person who sort of swoops in and allows you to take risks and lets you know that you have the cover should something 
go mm-hmm. awry as you do it. There's a lot of structural organizational stuff around feedback and reviews. What I find funny and what you would probably find funny too working in an office with five people is not every office does reviews every six months. Not every office does weekly check-ins. And so, so often you're working outside of the structure of those. My big number one takeaway to to everyone is really trying to shift away from this subjective stylistic feedback and being mindful of the ways that you deploy that as a manager, as a as a mentor. Like one rule is to just think for every sort of piece of advice that I give you about how you sit in your chair or use your voice, that there are two or three times where I put you on a big project, let you lead a meeting, do something sort of very tangible for you that isn't just focused on style. And I think people do it to be helpful, right? Mm -hmm. I think people really believe that giving that feedback can be helpful. And there's a lack of awareness of how much of that feedback most women are getting. Thanks for listening to my chat with Alicia Menendez. For more, make sure to get a copy of her book, The Likeability Trap, out now. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.